Normal service is continuing, but things weren't that straightforward this time round. Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. But James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of F1 in Review, the episode and the hour where we look back at another race, another win for Max Verstappen, this time at his home Grand Prix, the Dutch Grand Prix 2022. I'm Tom Clairbont and I'm joined by Angus Gallagher and Tristan Fancourt. He's back with us this week. A reminder that you can follow myself and Tristan individually on Twitter, as well as the F1 in Review account, where we post these episodes once they have gone out live on River Radio and published on our respective podcast providers. So we launch straight into the first topic, and unsurprisingly, we're talking about Red Bull and Max Verstappen again. Verstappen qualified in P1, reclaimed it, and held it until the chequered flag, while his teammate Sergio Perez qualified in fifth, and likewise reclaimed that and held that position until the very end. The gap between Max and the Ferrari of Leclerc qualified in P2 and finished in P3 is now over 100 points if you're looking at the Drivers' Championship, while going over to the Constructors' The gap between Ferrari and Red Bull stands at 135 points for good measure. Now, before we get on to how their competitors did, i.e. Ferrari, what are our thoughts on Red Bull's race and weekend so far? Was Max's victory ever in doubt for you two at all, or not so much? I think there was a a moment of doubt um, whilst watching it. And I must admit, I didn't watch it live. Unfortunately, I was on an aeroplane at the time, and I was so hoping that it wouldn't be a good one because I hate it when I miss a good race and oh, I missed a good race but luckily I managed to avoid all spoilers which was uh, was very good but the, the self-restraint to not go onto uh, Twitter or onto Reddit or uh, any of the news sports news sites to see the results was, was a lot and I must admit I was a little bit bored um, <laughs> trying to avoid seeing any spoilers but I did it so I watched all with fresh eyes and I did have that moment of doubt when Mercedes were starting to come into their own because let's face it it was never going to be a Ferrari uh, win um, during the race that that hope sort of got lost Um, but there was a moment when I thought you know what Mercedes might well have this and luckily for Max luckily for Red Bull you know they they did have that um, opportunity to take the the lead again by having some luck on their side when Sonoda uh, had a really weird incident threw up a safety car and you know sometimes that's the way that's the way it works and that corrected um, I think that the problems that Red Bull might have had um, because Mercedes were playing a different strategy keeping Lewis on, on newer tyres and he was hunting down Max but as soon as the safety cars came out and I think we, we all knew that the upper hand had been given to Red Bull by the fact that they could just change the tyres and, and give Max the pace advantage that we knew he had going into this particular race. And in from qualifying as well, he was just so fast. And there was only like 0.02 of a second between Leclerc and Verstappen in uh, in qualifying but the fact of the matter is it you know it, it going into the race i think we all felt that max had the the speed on his side the car on his side you know the fact that the clerk could pull out that that one very good lap was was you know something he could be very proud of but i just think max going into this knew that he could just do it lap after lap after lap and there was a few moments where he was definitely pushing to the limit during uh during qualifying in Q2, he ran very much very wide on turn three and, and hit um, after the banking of the track. He, he hit the the bumpy 
um like off track section with where they got the big curbs and that sort of upset the car a little bit and i thought oh maybe he could crash there um but you know that i think that was just max pushing the limits of the track and seeing basically what he could do into the race so no i don't think it was ever in doubt really um apart from in a small section when i thought mercedes might well get their first win for hamilton but we'll come on to that later on but um so yeah i you know for me I think it was pretty set that Max was going to win this one. Tom, I know in the last episode you said that you would eat your hat if, if Verstappen didn't win. And you know what? I would have held you to eating that. I would have wanted a proper bite out of, out of your hat. But your your head garment is safe this particular week um, until you make yet another bold prediction, maybe going into Monza or uh, another race after that. But yeah. Max was so good. Absolutely, yeah. The listeners will be happy to hear that I baked a hat-shaped cake in anticipation, but that was to be devoured at my own leisure and not for that uh, <laughs> of a sort of punishment, I suppose. But um, yeah, I think Red Bull and Verstappen specifically were sort of in league of their own, really. Um, the, the fact that they had the confidence, dare I say, audacity, arrogance to go, yeah, we can pit more than we need to and still win this race shows really in my mind that the championship, be that the constructors or the drivers, is pretty much over now. I think we were all of the opinion it was drawing to a close as a matter of when it was sort of fully put to bed. And I think we're coming close to that point now. But uh, do you agree, Angus? Do you think there's still a chance for Ferrari or not so much? Uh, they've got no chance, uh, to, you know, to put it bluntly. I think that this championship is over, realistically. 109 points. I think there's something maybe psychological about when the lead gets over the 100-point mark, especially in the Drivers' Championship. And if you were to do the hard maths, I worked this out the other day, um, clearly got lots of spare time on my hands, in the literal amount of points that are left to, like, to gather up for the rest of the season is 190 and the fact that there's a 109-point lead for Verstappen means that it's as good as over. Um, he could mathematically seal it in like Japan or the USA in three, four races' time. Um, he's looking, he's looking. He looks less dominant for sure than he did at Spa. It was reassuring to see the pace uh, advantage they had there, and he had there specifically had closed up. Tristan mentioned the close gap between him and Leclerc, not between Tristan and Leclerc, between Verstappen and Leclerc in qualifying. <laughs> and the fact it was in the end just two hundredths of a second, so very, very close. And you will admittedly short lap, so the times are going to be like cl- more uh, close together, but still very, very small pace advantage for Verstappen over Leclerc in qualifying. Um but at the same time, your ba- your main hope for Ferrari, realistically, was for one of them to have a blinding start and to get Verstappen into turn one, which did not happen. And then after that, out, from out of nowhere, no, well, not out of nowhere, from, yeah, from out of, like, unexpected circumstances, the Mercedes came roaring through on their alternate one-stop strategy. And it was actually beautifully played, I thought, until the end, which we'll get on to. But overall, it was beautifully played at the start, at least, because... They knew on a track where Zandvoort's quite difficult to overtake. Track position is key. Um, even though they did extend the DRS zone, so overtaking was easier. And it did show a bit, I thought. that I thought it did show that overtaking was easier. The fact that the DRS zone was uh, moved back. Um, but yeah, they looked at track position, thought that was key. And they got their drivers in first and second on what turned out to be a better race tyre in the hard tyre. Which I don't think too many teams had predicted initially. Um and yeah, got to the end and through interesting strategy decisions and bad luck as well, it can't be denied. The Alpha Tauri, for a start, I'm going to shoot down any conspiracy theories about Alpha Tauri helping out Red Bull. I'm sorry, it's complete rubbish in my opinion. They could not have communicated that during the race. Get your tinfoil hat off your head, please. Um, but at the same time, it was very unfortunate circumstances for Mercedes to to like run into that. And then the safety car as well. The safety car, yes, it gave them a helping hand, but then Verstappen had track position, and like that meant that he was in the king's seat in terms of strategy and what tyres to put on. Um, so yeah, Mercedes like was I felt were tantalisingly close that first win of the season. I thought Hamilton and Russell drove excellent races uh, overall, but obviously at the, when it came to the very end, didn't quite fall the way they hoped. Um, but yeah, overall Verstappen. He just, it's, 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 it's something you see, and I, I, I'm convinced it's a thing in sport, and I see it, saw it a lot with Hamilton over the years. When you are that good, 
and you push the limits of your car and it's, you're the top of your game enough, when you're when you're faced with circumstances which might get in your way, things just fall into place. I've seen it so many times with Hamilton where he'll be second or third in the last stage of a race and then something will happen, a safety car or a a nice quirk in pit strategy. Things will fall into his place. And Verstappen, this race admittedly was his for the taking. It got taken away from him on a strategy basis, but in the end it fell back into his lap again. Um, and as a driver in his position, you can't really complain about that. You've got to like take what you can in those situations. And yeah, he's looking dominant. He's looking like he's going to seal that second world title. 10 race wins out of 15 so far this season. Um, and he's also become the first driver in Formula 1 history, I believe, to win 30 Grand Prix by the age of 25. So he's not turned 25 yet. So yeah, mm-hmm. he's at a very high level right now and he's looking very difficult to stop. Yeah, and it was like quite a weekend for his teammate, wasn't it, uh, Sergio Perez? He stayed out, he didn't pit during one of those safety cars, so that's perhaps the reason why he finished in P5 and not slightly higher, not above uh, Lewis Hamilton, for example, or one of the Ferraris Eclair. But it's one of those now where we're looking at Mercedes taking the battle to one of these Red Bulls, should I say, Sergio Perez on lap 37, uh, 36, really shows to me that... It would be unfair for me to go and say that Perez has dropped off, but it shows that Mercedes are closing the gap, in my mind, seriously closing the gap now, to Red Bull, where they can, on their day, beat that car pound for pound. But still, we're in a situation where, despite Perez having a quieter weekend, he still remains level on points with Charles Leclerc in second place, so they're joint second in the driver's constructors. So it shows that even when Red Bull have a quieter weekend, or the second driver doesn't quite hit the heights that we expected of him or he's done previously, they're still there with Ferrari, which only in my mind solidifies the arguments that Red Bull have sewn up both championships, which is quite remarkable comparing it to how it is now versus the first few races of the season. Yeah, but you must remember Leclerc has a major disadvantage you know, on his side, um, which is he's got Ferrari looking after him. And at the moment, they seem to be you know, pretty incompetent when it, <laughs> when it comes to their... Uh, their drivers they can't seem to manage both of them either it's it's Leclerc or or Sainz having problems I mean even in this race we had Ferrari messing up Sainz giving him a 13 second penalty you know for, for good measure because they couldn't get their act together and that that gives Red Bull a fantastic opportunity to basically play everything safe and know that they can come out um, each weekend maybe not swinging and pulling as many punches as they need to because they've got so, you know, Ferrari's pulling so many own goals. You know, you don't have to try so hard when the the, the, uh, opposition team has decided to tie one of their hands behind their backs. Um, So, to be honest, I think Red Bull has got this sewn up, especially for Verstappen. I mean, it's ridiculous now. Just, um, you know, looking at the raw statistics, we, you know, we know that, you know, two more wins for Max... Um, and the championship will basically be his. He just needs to win at Monza and then at Singapore. Um, and then, I, you know, then I think the Checo and Charles would then need to um, finish at least third. Um, then he might need to also get a good result in, in Japan. But the, the point is, is Verstappen's now very much in the last couple of races before um, he can basically call the championship his. By, you know, and so... We are getting to the point now where we're beyond our, our predictions. Max is just needs to, you know, be very good now for the rest of the season. You know, this is annoying that we're calling it so early, but the reality is we just don't have a competition when it comes to uh, the driver championship this year. And you know, I'm still holding out for the the constructors championship, but you know, let's not kid ourselves. Red Bull was just too strong this year. They are mm. just too strong. Last episode, I wrote on my notes and indeed spoke. Another disappointing weekend for Ferrari, and I feel there's no real need to change that at this point. Waste not, what not, during this economic plight we're enduring, shall we say. But uh, Leclerc qualified second, finished third. Sainz qualified third and finished eighth. He had to show a lot of grit and gall, it's fair to say, the Spaniard, when it came to this race. He first of all had that very, very near collision with Lewis Hamilton on lap one. And then lap 15, that pit for soft to mediums 
and it seems the only issue that Ferrari's mechanics had is that they had three tyres and thought, hey, you know, let's leave the wheel gun lying in the pit. Who needs the full tyre? Who needs to make sure our kit are there at all? It begs the question, doesn't it really? Do Ferrari's mechanics and engineers talk at all? Unless we forget, do they talk indeed when the car's coming down the pit lane in any operation at all? So yes, you had that. You had Bottas stopping on the start-finish line. You had Sainz thundering down there, overtaking Ocon for P6. And yellow flags, but I'm told there's been no further action from the FIA when it came to that one. Then you had Sainz casually being released into the front wing of Alpine, uh, of Alpine's Fernando Alonso. Then one hell of a move on lap 61 on Perez to P5, but the penalty there meant he went all the way down to P8. Uh, unfortunately, yes, uh, sinking down the ranks there. But what do we make of, once again, a mistake-ridden weekend for at least one Ferrari driver? I literally, you know, in the last section, I was saying that that Ferrari seemed to be racing, uh, well, with three wheels, ironically, and playing with one hand tied behind their back. And I feel I feel sorry for both Leclerc and Carlos Sainz because, on one hand, it's just such a privilege to be able to drive from Ferrari. Unfortunately, being Ferrari, you have to deal with Ferrari, and it it annoys me when after the race they they ask Matteo Bonotto, you know, do you think Ferrari needs to change its strategy a bit because it seems to not be going very well? And he responds, no, no, no everything's fine, everything is fine, everything went to plan, we, uh, we've we made mistakes, but we don't see any reason why we should decide to change anything. And, you know, for Ferrari fans out there, this is why you're not having any success in the Drivers' or Constructors' Championship at the moment, because Ferrari has its head firmly buried in the sand when it comes to this these problems. And, yeah, <laughs> okay, it could be worse. It could be Haas, because Haas at the moment seemed to have um, the the leftover Ferrari strategists that couldn't make the cut in Ferrari. Um, or maybe they've got the young um, strategist uh, like um, training centre in Haas, because they're doing terribly as well. But the fact of the matter is, is, is Ferrari have lost themselves this championship, or at least they've lost themselves the chance at the championship, because... The problem for Carlos Sainz this weekend was was all started by them basically having the tyre in the wrong place. I think it was the, the back left tyre. Um, the 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 the, tire, the person who held the tyre was in the wrong place and so I had to like saunter around whilst Carlos Sainz had stopped in the pit and then that was it. I mean, he gave himself a 13-second time penalty and then Carlos Sainz got a further time penalty as well. But let's face it, at that point, you're just, you're, you know, you're pouring salt onto the wound. The fact of the matter is the wound is already there. And Leclerc, maybe that's why Leclerc had a better race, because all the bad luck went to Carlos Sainz. But it, well, this shouldn't happen. It shouldn't keep happening, at least. And this is what's annoying. It just happens over and over and over again. Every time Leclerc or Sainz starts at the front, my, my immediate reaction is, well, I wonder how long that's going to last, you know it's annoying that they keep making amateur mistakes like pitting at the wrong time giving up their tire strategy or not having the tires ready look you know at the end of the day if the tires aren't ready send your driver around again they're gonna lose three four tenths of a second not 13 seconds and it's like they don't see this they don't see you know or even try to predict the future they ferrari seem at the moment to be sitting on their hands with blindfolds on hoping that someone else messes up and it all comes in you know flying their direction which at the end of the day is not how you win a, 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 a championship and if Mercedes are strong next year then I think it's going to be Red Bull versus Mercedes I think this was Ferrari's big shot at having a at least a constructors championship perhaps um, and they've, they've completely messed it up and this weekend was just a yet another example of that and it's just disheartening to to see the the problems at Ferrari being untackled and 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 Ferrari themselves being unwilling to change anything. You just try something else. I don't know what it is, but something. Is it fair at this point to say that I haven't used this word yet to describe Ferrari this season, but it's getting a bit embarrassing at this stage. <laughs> Some of the problems they have, um, yeah, not having the right tire out. I mean, anyone can. I'm clearly exaggerating this a little bit, but anyone can realise that cars have four wheels. 
So if you're going to change tyres, don't bring out three. Um, <laughs> bring bring out four. The old Formula One trike. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like it's just yeah, it's just it's baffling really how they managed to mess that one up. Um, if we look at the other parts of Ferrari's race, Leclerc's pace was pretty good. He lucked out a bit in the end in that Hamilton's strategy didn't quite work out, which again we'll get onto later. So he managed to nab a podium in a race which didn't look like it would be too fruitful. Science, well, where do we start with him? He was the sufferer of the the tyre misdemeanour. And then for him, he also had, uh, what was next? It was the unsafe release, which I don't think can be blamed too much on anyone because it was a safety car situation. It was a tight pit lane. Science had the... It would have been the McLaren mechanics, I believe, because that's the order they finished in the constructors last year. The McLaren mechanics in front of him, and he had a really tight squeeze in what is one of the smallest pit lanes on the calendar. Um, so, like, I think it was a bit... I mean, of course, it was an unsafe release, so he had to be punished, but it was a bit unfortunate in the circumstances. I was surprised more that he didn't get punished for the yellow flag infringement. So when he's gone to overtake Ocon, and there's a car... Uh, there's Bottas's car which was stopped on the side of the straight and I, I guess Ocon has slowed down and therefore Science has gone in front of him and Science has just gone eh, whatever I'm ahead of him but at the same time I think that F1 usually is massive on like uh, like yellow flags and infringements under that and usually if you mess up like if you uh, if you speed during a re- if you overtake someone during a red flag, for example, in practice, that's you or qualifying, that's usually a ten place, fifteen place grid penalty. So they usually take that kind of stuff really seriously. So I was kind of surprised that a punishment wasn't handed down to science for the overtake that he did. Um, but they must have some data which we don't know about because usually, if you have a car on the inside of the straight, like there was. Like he's gone side by side with another car instead of just going a single file past the car, which is stopped on the straight um so i think he possibly got away with a further penalty there but yeah overall just yeah (laughs) ferrari just i don't know it's the um (coughs) i've mentioned this before when somebody's underperforming to a certain extent and then the media writes about them underperforming again and again and then every time they make a little mistake they scrutinize i compare it to the referees in the Premier League in football at the moment, I'm sure they're not that bad referees, but every time they make a mistake, they get absolutely torn apart by pundits, by newspaper writers, by journalists, by fans. And it can't help their confidence. If you're told that you are bad at your job, you're going to start to believe it after a while. As much as you may try to shut it out, there's a chance that it'll go into your mind. So unless the Ferrari strategists are completely incompetent, which I'm sure they're not, they're clearly talented at what they do they got to a place in their life to be able to work for a historic well-renowned formula one team um so they can't be that bad but they just keep making error after error and it doesn't help their cause that they keep making these errors and people see them making these errors um so yeah i mean ferrari please please improve just for your own good mate just for your own good please um just to make yourselves feel better um, and I'm sure they'll be looking forward to improving upon their strategy faux pas in the remaining seven races. But at this rate, it's a case of what could they produce next week? Could they turn up and like they're they're actually turned up in um, in civvies instead of like mm. Ferrari race suits? Like they've forgotten to put their work clothes on. Like I don't mm. I don't I don't know what's coming next. But I mean I I think they're going to be yellow next week. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah. I mean yeah they'll turn up in Mercedes uniforms instead. Just put the wrong kit on. Um, <laughs> But yeah, hopefully, like for their own good, hope they improve from here. Because um, yeah, I mean they have to. Can't get any worse from this point, surely. Well, you say that. What's next, Monza, the home of Ferrari? What better place to screw up here eh, after mm-hmm. a really disappointing season and a numerous amount of own goals and self-inflicted injuries from the oldest team in Formula One? But yes, Ferrari look like amateurs. They look like an amateur team. They look like. A team that would fare poorly in F2 and F3, as Nico Rosberg uh, hinted at there when it came to pit strategy. Uh, For those who don't know, there aren't really pit strategies in the lower divisions of Formula uh, 2 and 3, so you can draw any conclusions from that one. But 
in what universe is this palatable for a Ferrari fan, for a member of the Ferrari hierarchy, for somebody who is on the Ferrari pit wall? There's no universe in which this season has gone well because after so many years, Ferrari finally got themselves a championship winning car, a race winning car, and they've decided, well, we don't fancy winning races, we don't fancy winning a championship, we fancy being second or at this rate, possibly even third, because we don't want to win and that's the message that Ferrari are putting out at the moment they don't want to win because if they wanted to win they'd have made changes in terms of personnel in terms of uh, I suppose the general makeup and hierarchy uh, of Ferrari and what they do on race day and race weekends but they've decided not to do that and I think Matteo Bonotto is digging himself a rather big hole because if they perform poorly at Monza be that through uh, engine failures be it through power unit issues be that through themselves then the pressure just gets bigger and bigger on him. And because he's decided for whatever reason, no, no heads should roll, we, we're all on this together, everyone's in their right positions, eventually the hierarchy's going to go, well, if you're not prepared to make the bigger decisions, Minato, you've got to go yourself. And I feel that could happen if they don't win this championship, when they don't win this championship, because something as simple as not having tyres out is something you expect in karting to perhaps go wrong, not in the biggest motorsports in the world from the biggest team arguably in that motorsport as well it's not like Carlos Sainz just magically hocus pocus appeared out of nowhere in the pit box and they're oh here he is well I didn't expect that did I he's literally driving down the pit lane towards you and you go one two three <laughs> uh, we won't worry about the fourth I'll be there somewhere anyway um, <laughs> I can't do four and it's just it's just so disheartening yeah. to see, but it gets to the point where they're not even helping themselves and where a team and where a contingency are not helping themselves, they've only got themselves to blame, really. But the pressure is on. I mean, Ferrari have always been under pressure from their home fans, I suppose their home media, from everybody in Italy, really. And that pressure is going to be compounded if things get even worse at Monza and they don't unlock their full potential. Because we've seen how good Ferrari can be, the drivers, the car, everybody. When it goes really well, it can be fantastic look at the start of the season for that one but they've completely lost their way really and I feel they've only got themselves to blame and as I say if it goes wrong then what worse place for it to go wrong than their home well as I say they're going to be racing in yellow uh, next week to to celebrate their you know yet another anniversary it's it's an interesting one really isn't it um this is their 75th anniversary year whether or not they actually make the cars yellow i don't know yet all we've seen is the team kit in yellow and it does look rather cool i must admit i'm fond of a yellow ferrari um there's something about it that, that just looks quite cool the fact it blends in with the badge and whatnot yellow is quite important to ferrari and people forget that so maybe tom next week when they're when they're in yellow they'll forget also to bring with it the uh the disappointment um that the team in red usually feel and maybe the team in yellow will bring something new but to be honest angus my counter to your um your analogy um that when people start you know, saying you're bad, you're a job, you, you take notice, is that Ferrari have been told for a very long time that they're bad at their job and they aren't taking any notice. They've done the opposite. They've, you know, pulled over their blinders, shut the shutters and uh, have hunkered down into their their bunker of ineptitude and completely ignoring the fact that everyone around them is yelling at the top of their lungs, please change something. And to be honest, my question is, is it, do you think it will be Matteo Bonotto's head that rolls at the end of this if they don't win anything? Um, likely, based on previous history. Um, and say previous history, recent history, where Ferrari team principals tended to uh, be the ones who would be the fall guy for the poor performance that occurred before them. Um, I mean, Stefano Domenicali, the current CEO of Formula One. I was just checking my facts here, but yeah, he was after a few barren years. He was the he resigned as Ferrari team principal back in 2014. His replacement, Mister, I want to say Mister Mattiacci. Genuinely, I'm not just making up an Italian name. That was his name, uh, Mister Mattiacci. Uh, lasted a year after him, and then if we, you may remember Maurizio Arriva Bene, very charismatic man, came from outside Formula One, more from the uh, business side of sports cars and he's now CEO of Juventus Football Club um, he lasted four years before yeah before being uh, given the boots 
And again, that was because of results, not delivering a championship. Arriva Benny, those are the Vettel years where they came close to championships, but it didn't quite work out. Uh, now, Mattia Bonotto, he's had three, yeah, three and a half, almost four years in the job now. So if someone's head is going to roll, it may be his. Um, I can't say I know who would replace him, but yeah, the more that Ferrari uh, continue to show poor performance in races and on strategy, I think the more likely it is that Binotto may be the man who faces the axe. Yes, and it's a shame that they, they don't look outside. And I'm not saying necessarily for Mass Binotto, because I, I actually do think of all the people, he's done quite well to try and uh, wrangle the team into into something that resembles a, a you know a championship consent to contender but famously ferrari is internal looking and they don't you know they don't look out to other people and that will be to their detriment because if i was then them i would be absolutely trying to poach some fantastic people such as like hannah schmitz who is the the red bull um like chief strategist who did an incredible job this weekend and in no way deserved any of the abuse she uh, received over Twitter, which was absolutely disgusting and the t- the sport yet again letting itself down. Um, and, the, you know, I'd be trying to poach people like her, trying to get her into the team thinking, right, you know, these are the sort of strategy calls that we need. You know, Mercedes has a great strategy um, team and a great base as well. So I I don't know why Ferrari refuses to look out and and on the horizon of the sea of talent that's quite obviously there because whatever's happening inside of it at the moment is just not working and it's a shame that the you know so the the team principal is always the one that that heads on the shopping block because at some point you've got to think right if we're going through team principles and nothing's changing maybe mm. it's not them. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's one of those as well where you look at Ferrari, a huge beast in Formula 1. They've got huge commercial and cultural pull. They can pull people in with big salaries, pull it in with the allure of just being a senior member of Ferrari. So it's not like they're, with respect, someone like Alpha Tauri or Aston Martin have to go, oh, please join us, please. We're building new things and we've changed our name and we've got different colours on the car. It's one of those where Ferrari, realistically speaking, could have anybody they wanted mm-hmm. if they spoke yeah. to them with, uh, with enough, you know, sort of direction and gave them enough cash and gave them enough freedom. So it's not like it's one of those where they have to look inwards, which is so frustrating. I mean, look at someone like Alpine, for example. They're fourth currently in the constructors. One or two people there could perhaps be pinched and used next season to help you win a championship or McLaren they don't seem to be doing too bad either there's talent out there not only from the big beast that they could you know, take with them and use next season they already have a great deal of influence when it comes to junior teams for example Alfa Romeo mm. Haas they know how to go and use their commercial and sort of cultural influence. Why not go a, bit, a step further and be a bit more relentless I suppose have that killer instinct about you and go we want you and you, and you. Why? Because we want to win. But I don't yeah. currently get the impression that Ferrari want to win. I get the impression they're happy to be in the sport. They're happy to be the grand old team. They're happy to have the commercial aspect and the mystique and the allure, but are not in it for sporting reasons, which some people may be shocked to hear, and I'm sorry if that's the case, but look at what's in front of you. Do you think Ferrari needs to be just a little less Italian? Well, <laughs> um, I'm not too sure if it's a sort of uh, a country or a cultural issue, but something needs to change. And I think that everything needs to be looked at. No sort of stone should go unturned to what Ferrari needs to do to win. There needs to be accountability, I think, in some aspects. There needs to be better communication. There needs to be a new system put in place because the old system, I mean, we've seen it before in 2019, for example. We saw it in 2018 and 2017 to an example as well, where Ferrari were nearly there. They had a really good card, really good drivers, but there just was something that was missing that couldn't allow them to go and win the, the championship or get really, really close. And I think, as I say, if they want to go and win something, if they want to go and you know be a real force in this, which they can do with a snap of their fingers then maybe that's what they need to do, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If Ferrari's current motto in Formula 1 is Ferrari, well, there's always next year. <laughs> I just found out something, Something. it's not shocking, but have a guess how old... So Nick, Nick De Vries is replacing Vettel in FP1 in Monza. 
Have a, have a yes. guess how old Nick DeVries is without looking it up. 24. 18. 18. <laughs> Ambitious. 27. <laughs> I didn't know he was that old. Well, I didn't know he was that old was, either. Yeah. He's been retiring. Yes. Hold on a minute. He was on, he was on the camera um, at the weekend. Yeah. He's next to Toto, yeah. yeah. Doesn't look very old. Yeah, I know. It's mad, isn't it? He's older than us. Yeah. There you go, Angus. It's never too late for you to get into Formula yeah. One. <laughs> <laughs> never say never, folks. Start so now, yeah. If Nick, Nick DeVries yeah. can do it. <laughs> and then we have our latest uh, Formula Four uh, driver, Angus Gallagher, aged 24. <laughs> <laughs> He's standing next to <laughs> like 13-year-old looming, shall I say, because you, you're, you're very tall, so you sort of loom over the little one. Oh, good. Can you even fit in a Formula hmm. Four car? I, I don't know, mate. I never tried, so I couldn't, couldn't say. <laughs> I'll do your research. Maybe, that, yeah. maybe that's a content uh, piece upcoming. We'll uh, we'll go try our hands at a four to four. Oh. So sub- sub- subscribe for that at the very least. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I suppose if George Russell couldn't do it or just <laughs> yeah, about to do it, then small at the time. Surely. <laughs> he wasn't born at like six two like this. <laughs> Congratulations! It's a George Russell. <laughs> he comes up full size. He's just ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And we go further down the finishing grid now to Mercedes. Lewis Hamilton qualified fourth and finished fourth. George Russell qualified sixth and finished in P2. But as with Ferrari, that was only half the story. Hamilton was fighting and overtook Sergio Perez on lap 36 and 7, as I hinted at there. Then, of course, you had that Sonoda uh, stop saying his tyres aren't fitted in the whole hoo-ha regarding that. He then caused a safety car, carried on, told it was fine to carry on by his team. Then you had the virtual safety car on lap 49, where Hamilton and Russell on this occasion pitted for medium tyres, changing out the hards. And then you had another safety car caused by Valtteri Bottas, but this time around on lap 57, you had Toto Wolff and the Mercedes garage saying, right, we're going to keep track position, keep on those mediums, which are slightly worn, and we're going to sort of hope we can get ourselves a win there. But Russell said no. No, 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 no. I want to swap that out for softs with 15 laps to go, saying his tyres were degrading horribly. And that left Lewis Hamilton like a sitting duck, really, in my view. Went from lap, went from P1 to P4. But it begs the question, could Mercedes have done anything differently? Should they have pitted them both for softs and gambled on the fact they could have the pace to overtake Max Verstappen and go for the win or at least get P2 and P3 by the end? Or should they have overruled George Russell and gone, no, we're keeping on mediums, we're going this way and we're acting as one as the herd? What do we think on this? No, I don't think it's fair to to say that Russell shouldn't have pitted because out of everyone at Mercedes, Russell was the one who made the, the right call. I think Mercedes were put in a really, really difficult place by the, the safety car course by Bottas and uh, I know Hamilton and Bottas <laughs> are very good friends, but I I have to say maybe Hamilton uh, was a little less friendly to Bottas at the end of that particular race, um, given that he was very sweary on the radio, and it's very unusual mm. for Hamilton. We don't really hear that from him. the The problem for Mercedes was that they had one driver who wanted desperately track position, and another driver who knew that they didn't have track position and therefore could take a risk. And at that moment, the the team, I think, was stuck between a rock and a hard place because I think they knew that they could either give up track position to Hamilton, in which case Hamilton would have gone on the radio and said, why did you tell me to pit? I've given up track position to Max Verstappen, and now Verstappen's in the lead already, and he's got new tyres. I can't catch up with him, therefore I've lost my lead. Right, uh, or, or they have what they did, which is they leave Hamilton the lead and hope that Hamilton has the racing prowess, the luck maybe, to stay in the lead and keep him the track position. In which case, as we found out, Max <laughs> Verstappen gets past Lewis Hamilton, and then what we hear is, "Ah, oh, how could you, you know, how could you leave me as a sicking duck?" Blah 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 blah. And and so I think that Hamilton would have lost in either case. And then we get to George Russell. He's not in the lead. He's in second place. And so he has the opportunity to try something different. Should 
Mercedes have kept Russell in the way for Hamilton? No, they shouldn't. And why shouldn't they? Because you saw the pace that Verstappen had getting past Hamilton. He would have had the same pace getting past Russell. He had a 30 kilometer per hour difference, right? With all the speed, with those tires and with DRS. Um, and you, you just can't counter that. The fact is, I think what how, what Mercedes gambled on was trying to get second and fourth instead of, in my opinion, if they kept Hamilton and Russell on those tyres, um, I reckon they would have got maybe third and fourth. And second and fourth is better than third and fourth, if not even a worse result than that. And I think Mercedes also knew that if they gave, you know, if they sort of said to George, fine, you can have softs, then George could try and challenge Verstappen because there was no way Verstappen was going to be challenged by George or um, Hamilton on old tyres. And so when you really sit and think about it, Mercedes managed to strategize themselves into a position where they got second and fourth. When both Verstappen, Leclerc, Perez and Sainz, in my opinion, were should have been faster. And if that's not a success story, then I don't know what it is. And I know many Hamilton fans will be upset. And you should be upset. You know, that's how it works. You are upset the fact that your your favourite driver didn't win. But that doesn't mean you have to be abusive. And that was really dishe- disheartening to see. You know, we all see problems for, in the teams. You know, I, I, my you know, look at McLaren. We had Norris in seventh and Ricardo in 17th. Like, that's pretty disheartening for me. But you just have to look at the positives from it. And I think, to be honest, I think Mercedes did a good job. And I think they protected George Russell's race and allowed George to exert himself and and uh, over the team and influence their result. And I think Hamilton acknowledged that as well afterwards because he said himself that, you know, the, the result was actually quite good for the team. So all round, I think they made the right call at the time. Um, I think the question you've got to ask yourself is, was Mercedes able to give up the win for Hamilton or should they let him make the call and I think they let him make the call and Hamilton himself wanted to stay out and so that was it I think they made you know they let the drivers make the decision about what they think was best Hamilton thought it was best for him to stay out Russell thought it was best for him to get you know to pit and turns out Russell was absolutely right yeah I mean it's an interesting one it's very interesting because Mercedes are in a position where they have to sort of start deciding what their priorities are for the rest of the year. Do they want second place in the Constructors' Championship? Or do they just want a race win? I feel like part of them, they want that race win. They just want the pride. I think it would absolutely kill them if they went a a year without winning a race. Um, Especially when they've had chances to do so. Or like there's been sniffs. Not even chances. There's been sniffs so far of race wins. Um... I think they're something they're really desperate to tick off. I think 2013 was the last year they didn't win the constructors, and even then, when the car the car was good for sure, it was about the third fastest car in the field, like it is now, and they won a race. They were up against, ironically, a dominant Red Bull, and a Ferrari who were fast but not quite fast enough. It's a bit uh, a bit like this year basically. Um, and actually, to add to the symmetry, the fourth team in fourth place was Lotus, who are now Alpines. So that's a bit odd. Anyway. Um, mm. And then McLaren, who have, oh, it's just like 2013. But yeah, Mercedes wanted to try and get victories in that year. And they got got a couple of victories, I think. Maybe two or three. Not one, like I said earlier. Two or three victories. Um, and they have to decide now, do they want just a victory? Or do they want second place in the constructors? They're only 30 points behind Ferrari. In a team which, like we said, is having a crisis of confidence with their strategy. A team which is... Its car performance seems to be still fast, but not as fast compared to Mercedes as it used to be. So they have to start thinking: Do they want, like, do they want that second place, or are they just going to risk it for race wins? The strategy which they took on Sunday's race felt a bit like them just going for the win. And I was personally surprised that Russell was so his his um. His opinion, his personal preference, his strategy suggestion was so quickly like latched onto. 
I know he was going into the pits, so it, may, it was easy. He was kind of going in anyway. I know the field was processing through the safe through the uh, pits under the safety car, so it made the ease of access like well easier. So like you, like you see that happening, but then at the same time, they're very quick to just go. Oh yeah, of course, no problem. Um, I'm not saying that they hadn't thought that possibility. I'm sure they had, but yeah, it was um, an interesting call that was made at the time, and I think the main thing, a couple of things from it. One, it didn't give protection. If you have two Mercedes in front of Verstappen, yes, he could still overtake them both, and then you can go fair play. He's done us both, but at the same time. You give yourself an opportunity if you have the extra car before the Red Bull of Verstappen. One other thing, though, which we should mention, which wasn't mentioned at the time, or didn't come out till after the race, Hamilton was overtaken very easily by Verstappen on the straight, leading down into Turn 1. The reason for that being that Hamilton was actually in the wrong engine mode um, going into Turn 1. Now, it may seem ridiculous that a seven-time world champion with 100 race wins would be in the, quote, wrong engine mode, on a safety car restart, but they have different engine modes, and he wasn't quite in the right one, and as a result, that's why the Red Bull seemed like it just absolutely flew by. So, through a combination of factors, they kind of fested up, didn't really take the chance for the race win. Did they make a mistake with strategy? Yeah, I mean, obviously, yes, they did because they didn't win the race. But then it's easy to say that if we if they win the race. It shows you on what fine margins it is. Because if they win the race, we're all sitting here hailing Mercedes for a masterstroke. So realistically, if they're in a situation where they just want race wins, they were right to ro- they were right to roll the dice. And also, realistically, if they were consolidating points, again, you can say they're right to roll the dice. But they have to decide what their priority is. I think. Do they want the extra prize money? And admittedly, what would be less wind tunnel time for being higher in the constructors' championship? Or do they want those race wins would it be more test satisfying if they came second with no race wins or if they came third but say George Russell got that little uh, that little milestone under his belt you know it's up to them to think how they'd want it and I think Russell as well towards the end of the year may start to get a bit more pushy he's settled in well to Mercedes he's performed very well he's been admirably uh, working with Lewis Hamilton as a teammate cooperating he's been come across as very professional fits into the slick Mercedes machine that we know runs there. Um, but I think he wants a race win. I think he's 15 races in. He's joined a world championship winning team. And he's not won a race yet. He's got a pole. He probably wants a little bit more. I reckon as the races go on, he may be willing to take a few more risks, strategy-wise, and on track to get that first race win. So it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out as well. Um, but still, overall, positive signs for Mercedes. Who, I mean, shows what I know about Formula 1. Last week, they were 1.6 seconds off the pace. And I was on here saying, oh, it's not looking good. I don't know if they'll win this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they're going to need some luck. <laughs> uh, or I think my quote was, they'll need a race where something out of the ordinary happens. Um, yeah, I was wrong. A week later, they're back well. on it. <laughs> but yeah, we'd have to see. Strangely, Monza coming up next. Last two, last two years, the winners have been Alfa Tauri and McLaren. So, you know, maybe this weekend something happens and Mercedes mm-hmm. bagged that win. Absolutely, yeah. I think Mercedes were damned if they did and damned if they didn't when it came to this strategy. Mm. If they kept both their drivers out on mediums, Verstappen would have overtaken them. If they'd have pitted them both for softs, Verstappen would have been ahead of them in terms of track position. And the way things worked out, Verstappen won anyway. So I think it was impossible for them to go and win this race. But there's no shame really in coming second and fourth or second and third really. And when you consider that Mercedes were the fastest car in many sectors of this track or sections of it should I say, they have come on leaps and bounds really. And it's a difficult one in terms of whether they prioritise a race win or uh, P2 in the constructors. I think it would be a bit of a disaster, really, for Mercedes to go from winning in the constructors to not winning a single race. That being said, there'd be no shame, really, I think, in getting P2 when you consider that they started off so poorly and were in third by default and have really snatched this from... Ferrari, they've won a two-horse race when they weren't even competing for half of the season, really. So that would be quite a coup in many aspects, really. 
But we're seeing now, aren't we, when it comes to Mercedes, it is no longer Team Hamilton. I think it's impossible to say, but let's say Valtteri Bottas was in that George Russell car and said, let's go for the softs. I'm sick and tired of these mediums. Do you think that Toto Wolff and Co. would have gone, oh, come on in then, Valtteri, come on in. We'll keep Hamilton out of the mediums. I'm, I don't think so. So plaudits to George Russell there for being instinctive and saying, well, this isn't going to work. Let's do something different. But it also shows how much they trust him and how much freedom they're willing to give him I think Hamilton's sort of sweary outburst came from the fact that they didn't pit him more than the fact that they did pit George Russell the diversity I guess in terms of strategy and the lack of protection he got from Verstappen but as I say I think realistically speaking engine mode being wrong or right or whatever and tyres be, be what they will there was little chance really of a silver arrow winning this race um, so difficult to say but a very good race I think for Mercedes moving forwards um, but as we're seeing now, it's one of those where it's no longer uh, a team dominated by one man. It's a team dominated now by both drivers, really. And we saw how well Russell can do. And with all this in mind, the fact that they over, uh, they both overtook and finished ahead of uh, Sergio Perez and one finished ahead of one Ferrari and one finished ahead of another Ferrari, it shows they're very much in the fight now. And the, the magnifying glasses put even closer on Mercedes to go, well... With this pace you've got, with the improvements you made so quickly at a circuit uh, where we thought, well, you wouldn't do too well owing to its sort of geography and makeup, you've got to go, well, now's the time for you guys to go and win a race because realistically speaking, on their day, it's Mercedes versus Max Verstappen. And I understand beating Max Verstappen is a huge ordeal and a huge task, but the task itself has been reduced and is no longer insurmountable as it was previously. Yeah, I think, and, and, and this this race really showed the the duopoly of thought for want of a better phrase there um in the mercedes camp because angus you, you summed it up very well they i do think they had that, that internal fight whereby they were either after a race win or maximum points but i don't know tom what do you think do you think they went for the right decision trying to get points do you think they are trying to go for a race win if you tom were toto wolf you can imagine that for the moment a big Wow. Austrian man, um, <laughs> what would you pick? I would have probably both pitted them for softs, really. I think it's one of those where Russell was saying, well, my tyres aren't good enough, really, to last at the end with any pace. And they should have thought, well, if he's saying that, I can't imagine the Hamiltons will be much better. And I understand it's not being as ambitious as they could have been. And I suppose it's sort of taking the more cowardly option out by losing track position voluntarily. But there's no shame in P2 and 3, really. So... Uh, that's what I would have done. I think that's preferable to their strategy of keeping them out on all the tyres and just crossing their fingers and hoping and praying to their respective gods. But um, Toto was very, very clear that there was no way they would have done that. They had to keep some form of track position ahead of Verstappen. And I understand why they split it in many ways and did it the way that they did it. But I suppose it shows they sort of tried to do one thing, tried to do another, and sort of landed nowhere in the middle, really. So... I suppose the question moving forwards and the issue moving forwards to Mercedes is do they need to be more decisive, A, and B, do they need to make sure that if they roll the dice or don't in this scenario, they do it with both cars going in the same direction in terms of strategy. But George Russell said it was good that they split the strategy, but of course he'd say that because he finished in PT. So, it's official. Alpine have lost their appeal to F1's contract recognition board, which means that Oscar Piastri will race for McLaren next season, not the constructor currently in fourth place. They This all started when Alpine took to Twitter to say they were replacing the departing Alonso with Piastri for the upcoming season. The Aussie said no. You're not. And the contract recognition board said the only contract to be recognised is the contract between McLaren and Piastri dated the 4th of July 2022. Piastri is entitled to drive for McLaren for 2023 and 2024. Alpine say the matter is now closed in their mind and they acknowledge this decision. So what do we make of this? Are we surprised by this? Our thoughts on Piastri getting his way? We've done a very long left, so I'll uh, I'll sum up my thoughts quite quickly, really. Um, imagine being the team that has Piastri, not securing Piastri, and then now having to pay half a million dollars 
um, because you didn't get your paperwork in order. I think that's rather embarrassing from Alpine. And, you know, ages and ages ago in the podcast, about four or five podcasts ago, when the Piasco began, I said that someone wasn't telling the truth. And as it turns out, it's Alpine that hasn't been telling the truth. In an interview with um, Piastri this weekend with uh, with Formula One, uh, Piastri confirmed that he had actually told them twice that he wasn't going to be um, signing with them. And yet they decided to announce it anyway, which is embarrassing for, for the the um the the French team and I think it leaves Alpine in a difficult place. But he's going to um he's going to McLaren and Ricardo, I don't know what's gonna to happen to him. I think Piastri's gonna do well at McLaren. Um I hope he does anyway because all eyes will be watching on um will be watching him. And you know, as a result of the whole Piasco, maybe Gasly will be going to Alpine. So that'd be quite interesting, I think. But you know, the only person who's really losing out here I think might well be Ricardo. I like the continued use of the phrase "piasco." Um, I think this one's going to roll yeah. <laughs> roll for years. But yeah, I mean, Alpine have messed this one up so bad. Who runs their team? Who runs their legal team? Come on, show yourselves. You're not doing. You're not doing your job, mate. Come on. Um, yeah, I was just uh, there's a whole catalogue of errors here from. Piastri being promised a drive in 2023 and then them going back on that and trying to sign up Alonso, uh, then going to Piastri and say, you know what, we won't give you a place in our team that competes for fourth place in the constructors, we'll stick you at Williams and you can run around the back of the grid for two years. And unsurprisingly, Piastri, who it's no surprise that he's um, managed by Mark Webber, former F1 driver, who'll know the business inside out. So it's no surprise that he'll have bagged this good move to McLaren. Um, they they looked at the Williams uh, offer and they were like, no thanks. Um, they wanted more for someone who, lest we forget, we are I may be bigging him up a lot before he comes into Formula 1, but only three people have ever won back-to-back Formula 3 and Formula 2 championships in their first year in both. George Russell and Charles Leclerc are the other two, and they're quite good. Oscar Piastri is the third, so it's fair to say that he is very talented and why there have been so many teams after his signature. Um, and then there's the whole thing of Otmar Safnar being told by Piastri that he'd signed a contract for McLaren and that he wouldn't drive for Alpine. So what does Safnar do? Naturally, he sees Piastri in the simulator and in front of loads of mechanics and workers of the factory goes, right, see you next year, Oscar, in the Alpine seat. Um, to which, to be fair, Piastri from the sounds of it because at first it sounded like I think he got a bad rap for how he handled it and for being like all arrogant and turning down a Formula 1 seat but from the sounds of it he's negotiated a fair contract with McLaren signed it before Ricardo was told that he would be leaving the team bit awkward but you know they've cleared the air now supposedly um, and then Piastri's been told in front of people and he's and he said yes with like a sort of a smile behind a a frown if that makes sense just to sort of put on because he wanted to say a goodbye to the Alpine mechanics and finding out them finding out that he was changing teams without him pre, without him telling them himself wouldn't have been a nice thing to swallow um so yeah it's all over now Alpine have messed it up they have to pay a lot of money in legal costs really bizarre um and they come out in public saying, we'll have to have a hard, long look at how we conduct these kind of matters in the future. Mate, I'm no expert. I can see how you need to conduct it. You need to nail down your, your driver to a contract, and then you need to not be so two-faced about it in public. Um, very strange. But yeah, Norris and Piastri, a very exciting lineup at McLaren. Yeah, one of the best young drivers in Formula 1, and one of the probably, well, undoubtedly, in my opinion, the best young driver outside of Formula 1 right now. Absolutely, Alpine have been found out, haven't they? They're winged it on an industrial scale. It's not come up rosy for them. Not a great look, but for Piastri, he's playing a very high-risk strategy because, let's say, it doesn't work out at McLaren and he needs a, a team to fall back on. He's burnt himself a rather useful bridge, I think, with another good constructor currently in P4, going places, I think, with the amount of funding they have. So... As I say, he's put all his eggs in one basket in terms of the McLaren basket. Credit to him. It's worked out so far. But uh, be wary, young Oscar, I'd say, in terms of what you do moving forwards because 
Formula One is a small business, and if you don't have too many friends, be that in other paddocks or on your own paddock, then you could find yourself out of it if it doesn't go well. But um, looking at his record so far, there's a small chance, a very small chance this could happen, and best of luck to him in terms of McLaren, I think. Certainly a very exciting driver duo there. Fingers crossed the car can deliver, and they can get, up, get back up to uh, where they were in seasons gone past. Well, it seems that's all we got time for in terms of episode 28 of F1 in Review. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end of this one, be that on your preferred podcast provider or on River Radio, be that live or via the Listen Back feature. A reminder that you can follow myself, Tristan, and the F1 in Review account on Twitter. And Monza is next, as we hinted at earlier. Qualifying is 3pm on Saturday, that being British Summertime, and the race is at 2pm on Sunday, also being British Summertime. And no doubt there'll be a lot to talk about in regards to this one. Who wins? Who doesn't do very well and who's got a few more questions to ask themselves moving forwards but thank you very much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode